Welcome. This is the Fly Fishing Journeys podcast with host Rob Giannino, where we have great conversation with really awesome experts from within the fly fishing community. You see, the fly fishing lifestyle is a journey, and we're glad you're on this journey with us. Check out flyfishingjourneys.com for more podcasts, and please subscribe on your favorite podcast player. Here's your host, Rob Giannino. Ben Wally is a saltwater fly fishing guide and an accomplished fly tire from Portland, Maine. On this podcast, we chat about the incredible and unique flats fishery for striped bass in the southern Maine region. Ben is a gifted tire. Having built a special bond with legendary fly innovator Bob Popovics, Ben expresses his gratitude for everything he has learned from Bob. Ben's flies are highly sought after. Flies like his version of the beast, the Big Mac hollow fly, green crab snacks, and more. With his guiding schedule, custom orders have become demanding on his time. Because of this, he has developed a cool fly drop program where he offers monthly drops on a first-come, first-served basis for his free membership community. Ben has an incredible story that you are sure to enjoy. Stay tuned. Before we jump back into the podcast, here's a short word from one of our fantastic sponsors. Are you a guide, a lodge, or a product manufacturer in the fly fishing or outdoor industry? I want to introduce you to and highlight Cross Current Insurance. Their entire team are great people and experts in their field. They have a guide insurance program that is amazing and very affordable. If you are a lodge or retailer, they also have programs tailored to your needs. These guys fish and are in the outdoors, so they know the industry and the landscape. To get more information on a program that's perfect for you, find them at CrossCurrentInsurance.com. All right, well, thank you for coming back to the next episode of the Fly Fishing Journeys podcast. And I'm psyched to have Ben Wally on the podcast. Ben is an accomplished fly tire. He ties the beast flies. He works very closely with Bob Popovics, who's passing on all that knowledge from the pop flies down to the next generation. He is also a guide in the Maine area, southern Maine, the Portland area. He pulls people around for in the flats for stripers in the flats of Maine. So, Ben, I'm so excited to talk to you. Thanks for being on our podcast. Thanks for having me, Rob. Why don't we talk a little bit about where you're located? You said, like, right in Portland? Yeah, so it's southern Maine. It's about an hour from the border up. Yeah, Portland really turned around these days with a huge microbrew restaurant kind of. I think it's one of the highest per capita in the nation, so it's it's a really cool... Good vibe. Good vibe. We get the stripers all summer long, so they come up mid-May and stay till mid-October. They all migrate up, but we have the cool water, so they come up and spend the summers. When I'm in Massachusetts, you just kind of cruise by, so you got to kind of catch yep. them in spring and fall. It depends where the bait levels off, so mass gets some that, that summer there, but a lot of them, if the bait pushes up... You know, we'll get a push of bigger fish. The population isn't in a great spot. It's no longer being overfished, but it still is overfished. So there's a lot of efforts going on with the ASGA to put litigation and improve the fishery. With that being said, we're the northernmost most fringe of the striper migration. So we feel it. it's amplified because yeah. it depends, you know, where the bait decides to go, you yeah. know. So year to year, we get fish no matter what and good fish but the big big pods of bass you know sometimes end up in boston or you know kittery area a couple years ago we got mother load of big ones in my area 
So that varies a little. You know, if the population were how it once was when it recovered, everybody on the coast should have that, right? But we're getting there. Well, there's a mouthful right there. You gave me like three things I need to, to find out about. One, you talked about the uh, association. Why don't you tell yep. our folks a little bit about the Striper Association, what that you know, what the acronym stands for, and what they're doing, and what are some of these past few wins we've seen over the past couple of years? Yeah, so the it's the American Saltwater Guides Association, and it's a little bit of a misnomer because it's not just for guides. A lot of guides are involved, and they have. Uh, experts that can they they do a great job dialing it down they're very involved in all of the litigations and hearings and having a voice for the wreck angler for the guides is essential we need to be a unified force across the board and up until this point i think it's been a little little scattered as far as you know you have the party boats the charter boats you know the commercial fishery and they're doing a good job helping to rein it in and uh kind of give a unified voice so I've been trying to get involved as much as I can spreading the word trying to get people involved amendment seven passed last year which was a huge win and the stock assessment came out this past year showing that it's not as bad so we're in the right direction given the current rebuilding plan the population should rebound to to the threshold by 2029 so there's always things popping up that commercial quota transfers that was the most recent one that's still ongoing where certain states want to be able to transfer when they hit their limit they want to be able to request the transfer of commercial quota from a different state that hasn't used them and the public was very very vocal very involved with i attended every every hearing up and down the coast they were all virtual and it was a it was 98% of everybody that commented was very unified as far as they do not want that. Yeah. You know, in order to rebuild by 2029, we cannot be taking more stripers out of the breeder class and we need to protect them. And, and it's good to see people want to protect them. They yeah. see how urgent it is, you know. So they're great organization. You can head over American Saltwater Guides Association and get involved. Join the newsletter. It's it's free to become a member. Yeah. You know, anybody that loves stripers uh, should jump on. And they do a, a number of other fisheries as well. They had a big Albie win with a tagging program lately. But anyways, they're, they're good people and a good voice for our fishery. For sure. And why don't you talk a little bit about the change in the size and slot limits that kind of just came out over the past year or two where they've gone from like one fish plus 28 to now you have to be in that slot yeah so ours hasn't changed up by us okay i'm not sure massachusetts i think maybe it's just and that's another question i had is how do you kind of keep these regulations uniform up and down the coast from like maybe the chesapeake all the way up to maine and further yeah so there's a, a governing body but each state has a voice in that governing body but they can determine based on how many they have a quota that they have to to cut x amount of fish being taken and the states are able to choose how they want to do that mm-hmm. right up until recently conservation equivalencies which are kind of we're going to try to do something different based on fuzzy math and if we end up taking more 
we don't count it on the back end. So it's this weird fuzziness, which is why everybody it has been very vocal about doing away with conservation equivalencies. But yeah, so it's state managed state by state, which to a certain degree, you know, the populations, you know, they're breeding in the Chesapeake, yeah. you know, further south. And we get them for the summer. So the population is dispersed differently. So it, it makes sense that limits should be controlled on a local level. Okay. And uh, like Maine doesn't have a commercial fishery. So what are your limits right now up in Maine? Like, is it 28 plus still? It is uh, one over 28, I think. Yeah. I do all catch and release. Yeah. It's good to see more and more people doing that. Yeah. You know, that's one of the things I like doing the most on my charters is, is educating the public, you know proper handling, proper how to fight the fish properly so you're not exhausting them and so the survival rate can go up. Because the wreck anglers are the ones, the post-release mortality is the wreck angler. They're trying to do good, but they release them and they're ending up dying. So the intention's good. So educating the public is a big one, which being able to just teach and, and show clients and on social media, explain proper handling, proper release, proper, yeah. you know, how, how to take pictures with fish. You know, everybody wants a grip and grin, but there's proper ways you can do it so that you're not stressing the fish out, right? Do, have you found that stripers have a higher mortality rate than other fish, say like a trout? I don't know the numbers on that. Yeah. I did hear a number as high as 50%, but I'm yep. not sure how yeah. accurate that is. Yeah. I don't know how it compares to, to trout, but no, it's super high. That's and really scary. Yeah. Considering the wreck accounts for the majority of that, right? There's the commercial fishery, but the wreck anglers, you figure stripers are every man's fish, you yeah. know, which is unique. It's just interesting because, you know, like a, a large mouth or a small mouth, they're super vibrant, strong fish. It's like... Yep. You can pick them up, take a picture, put them back in there. And like I've never seen a smallie go upside down. Well, a lot of it doesn't happen immediately, but I mean, I see it almost every day. You watch people catching them off the, the ledges up by me. They're pulling them up, dragging them up the rocks, keeping them out for 30 seconds, a minute, and then kicking them back in or pulling them up on the beach. And, mm -hmm. you know, whether they're meaning to do harm or not. Those are things that I think we can influence. And I believe most people don't want it too bad, right? Right. And I'm not opposed to keeping fish. Yeah. If we can all do a part and all educate people, I think it's, while on a grand scheme, it's like me not letting you keep one on my boat isn't going to save the population, right? Mm -hmm. But I can educate you so that you can then share it with people and, you know, in hopes that it spreads, right? And it exponentially grows on that level. The other thing you had mentioned too is the baits. It mm -hmm. has the success rate or where the fish are and your chance of people catching nice stripers in different areas kind of follows where the baits are. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about what stripers eat you know, up and down the coast and especially as it pertains to your main flats fishery. Yeah, well, so our fishery is super diverse in that, you know, they arrive mid-May and they're heading up, in, it's normally the smaller ones first, they're heading up into the warmer estuaries, mar salt marshes where the water's warmer, chasing smaller bait, and then the fish end up finishing breeding and migrate up, and they follow the herring and alewives, and the bigger ones show up, and normally they key in on the herring and uh, alewives, and that's super successful in targeting them that way. 
And then once they're done spawning, the bait fish, they drop back and they kind of settle into their summer routines, right? So you have the flats fishery, which up by me, it's pretty diverse in that you have oyster flats, mud flats, white sand flats. So there's a, a vast array of different situations from tailing fish to typical sight fishing over white bottom. And they love crabs. We have a ton of invasive green crabs. And manners fish it a lot differently than the rest. They're throwing heavy, heavy sink tips and dragging crabs on bottom. Super successful. You can't do that from a flat skiff, so the tactics are a little different. But they key in when they're in the, the flats areas. They're feeding on shrimp. We have a lot of grass shrimp, tiny sand eels. Our sand eels tend to be a lot smaller. And then we have Brit herring and different herring that... Uh, are kind of in the estuaries that they chase around. But then you can go out front, which is where I got into tying bigger flies. So the bigger flies that Bob has highly influenced and mentored me on has been, I swore for years that the big patterns don't make sense for Maine because the pogies were wiped out and we weren't getting them. They wouldn't show up to Maine and they started returning. So really we had a couple week window with the herring and alewives running early season that you could use big big flies for and that was it so it seems silly to kind of really get into these big patterns and then the pogies started coming back and that's where you start seeing bass blitzing similar to you do in mass and south yeah so that's where i started exploring that and i was doing shore-based ledge fishing trips and really kind of dialed in those patterns and now i'm doing flats fishing so i do primarily smaller baits you know some you know you'll get five to seven inch bait fish profiles that work good you know when the tide comes in and you're targeting you know stripers that are keyed in on those smaller baits by and large for fish that are a, a I've kind of focused on the ultra skinny, so, you know, under a foot and a half of water, oftentimes under a foot, and they get super edgy, right, because they're so exposed, but it's super visual, super technical on that front, and a a cool experience for any clients I have. So, you can go out front, though. I can take you from the flat to out front around the islands or ocean side, and you can throw big flies, you know, and there's big fish off the rocks. It's a very dynamic fishery up there that I'm not doing anything new. People have, you know, flats guides have been up there doing it a long time. But I also don't think that when people think of, hey, I'm going to go striper fishing or I'm going to book a charter, I'm going to go to Maine, right? (laughs) Or flats fishing. Yeah. But it's cool because there's so few people, you know, you go further south and you're going to see boats, charter boats upon charter boats Mm -hmm. and you're competing up there. For now, you really have a lot of solitude, which is awesome. Yeah. So it's it's a remote almost feeling with a backdrop that twists your mind with lighthouses and pine trees right up against the shore. Yeah. But you're sight fishing. Mean, yeah. Yeah. It captivated me once I got into doing it. I love uh, sight fishing, having grown up in South Florida and then Brazil. So I've, it's always been an interest of mine. And then figuring out that you could do it for stripers up in Maine. When I moved to Maine, I was like, this is amazing. Yeah. Right? So it's a very diverse fishery that I love sharing with people. There's a bunch more that we need to, to dive into here because you <laughs> gave me a lot of good material here because I want to talk about like 
the New Jersey. I want to talk about Brazil and then back to Maine. So we want to get into your story a bit. Yeah. Before we do that, I want to finish up on a couple other yeah. things. We're going to take a short commercial break to hear from Tim O'Neill of Norvice. What makes the Norvice different than another system? There are a lot of rotary fly tying vices out there. The Norvice is the only vice that will truly spin when you tie flies, and there's a big difference between rotating a vice slowly and spinning it at a bit of a faster RPM. And being able to spin the hook on a zero-axis rotations opens up a lot of doors for us in the world of fly tying. Tell me about the introduction of colors to the Norvice system. When we obtained the company from Norm, he said to me just a very, very short statement. He said, you know, I always thought a colored Norvice would be a cool item. We brought out five colors, Radical Red, Sunset Orange, Shamrock Green, Liberty Blue, and Royal Purple. We have five colors along with the black that you're accustomed to seeing with Norvice, and we've been doing very well with those. To find more information in their online store, visit nor-vice.com. You talked about the the different types of bait fish that yeah. kind of came inshore and then offshore. What are some patterns that you like to use for to match the hatch yep. for some of the inshore kind of skinny water flats fishing the smaller yep. fish, your sand eels you had talked about, and then you had mentioned the beast and some of the bigger yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I fish a lot of typical bonefish flies. No kidding. Know. Yep. Um, so those little shrimp patterns you're talking about are bonefish flies? Yeah. Like gotchas and crazy charlies? and They work, yeah. Wow. Yeah, I mean, we... We have grass shrimp, which are very similar, right? Because I have these beautiful, you know, bonefish flies, but I don't get to use them all the time, right? So if I can come up to Maine and... Well, I mean, that's what you use in Long Island. That's what, like, when you're sight fishing for them, you know, it all carries over. The the bait are, the shrimp are very similar to shrimp. Wow. You know, further south. Yeah. We're a little different than down further south, New Jersey, Long Island area, because we don't have blue crabs, blue swimming crabs. We only have the green invasives. You say invasives. Somebody put them in? Asian. Okay. Yep. So Um, those are not native crabs. They exist down here, too, but they're really, they're just growing exponentially. Stripers love them, so you can use it to the advantage to catch them, which is a positive, but they're also decimating, you know, a lot of the grass, a lot of the, you know, mussels and oysters, and it's not a good thing. So local restaurants are looking into ways to potentially use them in cuisine. Yeah. I don't know that they've gotten all the way there yet. Okay. I mean, those green invasive crabs exist up and down the coast, but we don't have the blue swimming crabs. So the presentation is a little different, right? In that when fishing a crab, you can't start stripping the second it hits the water, right? Because we fall. don't have a swimming, yeah, versus shrimp flies. You know, you figure you're stripping them through the water column. Yeah. And, and then as far as other flies, back to your point, I have a couple patterns that I've kind of dialed in. One is I call the best bet that me and a buddy have kind of really dialed in, kind of taking some inspiration from the West Coast using jig style hooks using keel weights i like using channel lip on a lot of my patterns it weights it it dumbbell eyes spin this doesn't so it's it makes it much more durable and it doesn't foul as much because it's on a keel hook so i I fish those quite a bit bend backs small bend backs i find are super useful too this best bet that on your website here is that a, a pattern you've invented I, or altered? or <laughs> Well, I struggle with this because I truthfully believe there's nothing that is being invented necessarily that hasn't been done before. So, it, you know, it's a tweak. It, you know, you get inspiration. That's one thing I love about social media, honestly. 
the only thing I love about social media is being able to get inspiration across the globe. You know, yeah. you have access. Before it used to be shows, yeah, Europe shows or U.S. shows, and that was your opportunity to see tires and to you know cross pollinate. Now you have access to everybody, and so West Coast use jig style flies. They don't necessarily use them with channel lead to that extent. Then there's a local pattern up by me called the guitar minnow that Eldridge Brothers, the local fly shop, has tied and it's it's a deadly pattern. And it's tied, it's a half and half style fly. But so the color scheme is similar to that. So, you know, you grab pieces from a bunch of patterns. Is it original? No, it's a combination, you know, of a bunch of different patterns. Yep. I always... I struggle with a lot of those because, you know, all of these patterns, similar to Bob's, I'm not necessarily inventing anything new. I'm optimizing it for my fishery and trying to improve by making it easier to tie for people. You know, Bob did a hell of a job dialing in his patterns for his fishery. And my the way I fish them are slightly different. And that's where, as a tire, being able to swim them, far too many people tie flies and it looks beautiful and then they never look at it in the water or look at it from the fish's point of view and that was one thing bob shared with me i used to tie these these beautiful patterns that i would use peacock hurl on for the back you know because it has that cool iridescence bait fishy oh, yeah, looking. I love peacock hurl. yeah and he's like one day we were talking and he's like do me a favor go swim that and report back so i'm like okay went took my gopro swam it and i'm like damn it the second i did that you see the peacock curl separates from the fly oh looks like truthfully it looks like you snagged seaweed wow so i rarely use peacock curl on my patterns anymore because it doesn't look realistic it looks beautiful in a vice yeah beautiful for fly fishermen but swimming it so that's just like being able to watch it you know they have flymen Fishgo, I think, came out with the test yeah. tanks or whatever. That doesn't necessarily work for me because the patterns I'm doing are so big and it's so small. Yeah. But, you know. I, How did you swim it with the GoPro? I normally just put it on a, a tip section of a rod with a section of 20 pound, you know, and tie it on and then stick my GoPro or my phone. I about got frostbite last week taking some cool videos and it's freezing temps, but a local creek by my house. So I have my phone underwater, you know, videoing it as I just let it, you know, swim in very little current just to see the purpose on so many of the patterns is density in the front, sparse in the back. And the more tips you have, the more movement, the more it becomes alive on its own. So being able to see that, I think far too many people that tie Bob's patterns, for instance, overdress them. And when you overdress them, you're just restricting movement, which defeats the whole purpose of like the bulkhead or the hollow fly. So being able to see that as a tire and just kind of continue to optimize that is so critical, which is what I try to pass on to students when I teach classes and stuff is like, watch it. Yeah. You know, Bob's number one thing, which I worked corporate America for a while and they did like the Briggs and Meyer tests or whatever. I forget. There's a bunch of different ones. And my number one trait was always, you know, observer, which I found fitting because Bob's number one rule and thing to teach people is be a better observer. If you want to be a better fisherman, if you want to be a better fly tire, if you want to be a better outdoorsman, 
you need to observe. And, you know, so I like being able to share with people ways that I've figured out how to observe to improve my tying or improve my fishing or improve what the bait looks like in my area. Super cool. Tell me about your relationship with Bob. And for those who don't know, we're talking about Bob Popovics here. Yeah. The originator of uh, Pop Flies and Pop Flies 2 and the Beast Local. and the Hollow Fly and like all the... He's a legend. Yeah. Yeah. So I had a buddy turn me on to Hollow Flies. Kind of. He's a amazing tire, Travis Shipman up by me. He turned me on to that style fly and I started playing around with it and I realized their bucktail is tricky. It's tricky to deal with. So I, I kind of went down my path. I didn't really know of Bob's book at the time, which was weird. So I spent a couple years focused on, I'm going to learn to tie with any bucktail. The crappiest, the stiffest, the softest, the, you know, and just every day make it a point to tie a handful of flies. You know, most of them ended up getting stripped back down with a razor blade. But it taught me so many things on how to use different types of bucktail and the purposes. And then I was introduced to Bob's book and I'm like, holy cow, so many of the things I learned on my own are perfectly aligned with what Bob's talking about. And, you know, I guess I drank the Kool-Aid. I'm like, he's just brilliant you know and it's i love learning from the greats when he started out there was nothing like in the saltwater fly realm and he was a innovator he was a pioneer of the time you know and since then a lot of things have been developed a lot of things you know have come and gone and he's tested them he's and he's passed on everything he knows you know and so i was introduced to him I was fortunate to get a lot of help from local guys, not local guys, but guys uh, through social media like Jason Taylor, Andrew, Warshar, and they were just very freely giving of what they learned from Bob. And I just kind of was in my lane up in Maine, you know, keeping to my own. And like I mentioned with social media, it's like, I'm so inspired. I want to inspire too. So it became this cool, you know, I'll share that's my goal for social media is let me share this it's not that i could give two craps about you know followers truthfully i want to inspire people you know i love being inspired i think it's great being able to to push our sport forward and improve things for sure so by that means ian devlin who i believe works at the complete angler his dad lives up in maine and he was up for the holidays and reached out out of the blue and was like hey can i stop by so he stopped by and we hung out and tied flies for the afternoon and he went back and told Bob about me and shortly after that every Monday Bob and I would go back and forth and he shared with me and I'm a sponge I love learning yeah. everything I can from Bob and anybody that's you know knows more than me. Well you actually kind of segued me into my next topic here which is learning because yeah. you told me Something really wild before the podcast that I want to see if I can understand this correctly. You actually have a degree in chemical biology or... Biochemistry. Biochemistry. Yep. And you got that degree from... Uh, UMaine. University of Maine. Yep. And so my next question is, wow, you must have got some great grades in high school to have (laughs) such an advanced degree in college. And what did you tell me then? Uh, I didn't go to high school. Unbelievable. Yeah. I had a super non-traditional upbringing. My dad's an artist. He's a 
He's going to go down as one of the greats of our time. He's a fine artist, does graphite, egg temper, and oils. He's up in Maine now, John Wally. Does he have a website that people can check out? Johnwally.com. He, he's phenomenal. Spell it, too, because people might not know how to spell that. Uh, J-O-H-N-W-H-A-L-L-E-Y.com. We'll put that in the show notes as he's, well. Uh, him and I moved to Maine from Brazil back in 2003 because my grandmother was in Maine and needed dual hip replacement. So we came back for two weeks. And when I arrived, and I'll explain why we were in Brazil in a second, but when we arrived, I was like, I haven't gone to school. I should really get my GED since I'm here for a couple weeks. So I went to the local adult ed program, and within a couple weeks, I got my GED. And then that local program was like, hey, we, we just got a flyer in the mail about this non-traditional, this program up at UMaine for non-traditional students. You should check it out. So I went up there, and, and sure enough, it was a program that you didn't have to take the SATs. You literally just took a, a semester of probably like senior math or something. Or yeah, it was like algebra or whatever. And if you passed, if you proved that you could stick with it, I mean, most of the students in, in this program were convicts getting out of jail, going back to school, yeah, or parents who had kids early and were going back in their 40s, you know. Yeah. And then there was me who was 18 and it worked for me. It got me in the door. But yeah, I never... Hey, my parents moved us down to Florida and then to Brazil to start a home for abused and abandoned street children in Brazil, since Brazil has a third of the world's street children. So they helped start that. And my brother and I grew up amongst the, the street kids in the program. We had a big ranch and I had over 30 horses. I trained them, broke them. Really? And, you know, did rodeos and screwed my back up a lot that I still pay for. Throw this whole 30 horses rodeo ranch. You can't throw this at me at the end of the podcast yet. This is not fair. We can go a little longer. He gives me a time limit and then he throws rodeos. I have a farmhouse in Boxford so I love horses so we're going to have to do part two, Ben. No, we can go a little longer. Okay, all right. We're going to have to do part two. We're doing part two anyway. How about that? Because I do want to close on this whole idea of fly drops because people love your flies. Yeah. And you can only tie, right, so many. How many flies can you keep going? And these are big flies, too. Yeah. And these take a long time. So you've got this cool website. And what you do is, like, you have to become a member, which is free. Yep. And then you alert your members when the next fly drop is going to be. And you have so many. Once a month. Once a month. And you have so many flies. And then once they're gone, they're gone. Yep. And there's going to be different patterns you can buy. I think it's said buy them. Why don't you tell our listeners yeah. how the fly drop works? And Yeah. Because so I know these things go super fast. <laughs> they do. So I do once a month. You become a member. It's literally just an email list. So I can send an email out to everybody. Uh, letting them know what date and what time. And then the day of, I send out a notification that, hey, it's going live. And if you're a member, you have access to the fly shop on my page. Otherwise, you can't see that portion of it. And first come, first serve. I did custom orders for years and I was always eight months, 10 months backed up. And, you know, I never want to lose my passion for tying. I love tying too much. And what doing custom orders and being, having that pressure on my shoulders constantly, it just drained me, you know. And I'm blessed to have people that are 
interested and supportive. And on top of biochemistry, I have a Lean Six Sigma black belt that I got. So I do a lot of troubleshooting. Quality is, is number one always for me. So I refuse to do commercial, you know, crank them out for numbers. So if you're getting one for me, it's my best, you know. Granted, looking back a year, it's like, ah, I've come so far, which is cool, but... You're learning. You know, everyone I put out is my best, you know, and I won't send it out the door otherwise. And it allows me to continue with the creativity and still love to die. Yeah. So I do small batch releases. What's a small batch? How many? So it's normally like six to eight of the larger beast flies. And then probably, I mean, it ranges depending on what time of year and how much time I have to dedicate during the guide season this year. I had to, since I was guiding full time, I did not have time to tie. So I kind of went, shut things down during guiding season. But I'm trying to do one a month. So six to eight big ones, and then some nine, 10 inchers, packs of two or three, four or five of those packs. And then, I don't know, like 10 to 15 three packs of bulkheads or hollow flies so it's enough but they i've just been blown away by the interest and uh how fast they go you know so if you would like to which obviously thank you for anybody's support be quick that's all i can say you know the last one ended up selling out in 15 minutes the one before was like six minutes so that's amazing just when you get the notification I, i was amazed the first couple drops I did, I was at shows or I was traveling, so I automated everything. And when I was working out the kinks, I thought I had the email go out. Like when it dropped, I started, like they sold like right gone. when I thought. And then I got home from the Marlboro show and I'm like, the email never sent. So people had marked their calendars like a month before wow. with the date. So. so you never sent the email, but the drop still happened, <laughs> yeah. and you got sold out. I love that. That is so good, man. You need to bottle and kind of sell this marketing concept. I mean, <laughs> it's nothing new. <laughs> I, people are doing it, you know, and and uh, I want people to be able to get the best I can provide. I want to be able to continue to have time to teach, you know. So yeah. I'm doing classes. I'm doing a couple classes at Saltwater Edge and Newport. Rhode Island, doing a a couple full-day classes at Eldridge Brothers in Maine. So being able to do that face-to-face, you know, hands-on. I'm a visual learner, so being able to spend time doing that, I think, is essential. And for people that want to fish my flies, being able to provide them with the best I can put out. That's awesome. So, yeah, I'm very humbled by everybody's interest and, and support with me ejecting from my long corporate America career as an engineer. Oh, yeah. I was an engineer, too. You're throwing a lot at me at the last <laughs> minute here with this whole We're good. wrestling. The ba- I'm not wrestling, but the black belt and now the engineer and the Brazil. Rodeos. Rodeo. Did you fish down in Brazil? Okay. So we got part two coming yeah, up, guys. Well. Stay tuned for part two. With Ben Wally, I'm so excited that uh, we got the chance to, to connect and meet here at the show. Ben, yeah. why don't you uh, tell all the listeners, we'll put in the show notes, the website. Yep. So, website is benwallyfishing.com. I tried to keep it uniform. So, Instagram is at benwallyfishing. Same with uh, Facebook. And I try to answer messages if you have questions or you know anything comes up as you try to tie these on your own. You know, I'm an open book, so... 
please reach out. I Sometimes I get inundated, but I try to get to them as quick as possible. And if any of you want to uh, venture up to Maine for some flats fishing and, and some uh, striper tails, contact me. I'd love to get you guys out. That'd be sick. Oh, flats fishing in Maine for stripers. That's yeah, fun. Good time. Ben, thank you so much for sharing some of your knowledge and being yeah. on the Fly Fishing Journeys podcast. My pleasure. You've been listening to Fly Fishing Journeys with your host, Rob Giannino. To be notified of new episodes, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or Google Podcasts. You can follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. For past episodes, check out flyfishingjourneys.com. Fly fishing is a journey, and we're glad you're on this journey with us. 